This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories is brought to you by Sports and Ortho. If you're a city employee and you get hurt, you have the option to request Sports and Ortho when you're being assigned some physical therapy, right? Yeah, absolutely. We can always choose us. We're on the city plan, so if you want to come to us, we are happy to see you. Yeah, you're, you're not locked into whoever they send you to. You can always make a request to go to a better facility if you'd like, and Sports and Ortho is a good alternative. We think so. Okay, welcome back to Chicago's Bravest Stories. Our guest today wrote and directed the documentary, which I'm sure a ton of people uh, who listen to this podcast have already watched the original one. We're with uh, Tom Putnam from Burn and Burn X. So thanks for being on the podcast, Tom. Hey, thanks for having me. Walk us through the original Burn because we'll get to the new one that's coming out. But most of us have already watched the original one. And if you can kind of walk us through what made you want to do that, because you have a whole bunch of other ones that you've done. But what made you want to do something involving the Detroit Fire Department? Sure. Great question. I uh, made the film with Brenna Sanchez. We both produced and directed it. Uh, both movies, Burn and Burn, the new film Burn X. And... We came to it from two really different standpoints. You know, you know, it's about the Detroit Fire Department. Brenna grew up in, in the city in Detroit, so she knew what the fire situation there was like firsthand. And I'd never been to Detroit before we started filming. Um, I grew up in Oregon, in like a pretty rural area. And when I was in kindergarten, our house caught on fire. And... It took the fire department an hour to get there because of the area we lived in. It was just not near anything. There were no fire hydrants, so it was a real... Was it, was it a volunteer fire department also? Um, It wasn't. It was a county fire department. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, and it was like a new housing development, and, they didn't, and back then you didn't have to have fire hydrants, gotcha. and the whole, house, the whole house burned down. And so I grew up knowing that, like, it isn't a given that you're going to call 911 and somebody's going to be there in three minutes, which I think the average person maybe takes for granted. I think most people take that for so, granted. Yeah. And um, then going to Detroit and seeing that, you know, I mean, these guys at the time, these guys were fighting fires like it was the 1950s, you know, with axes on roofs and aggressive interior attack. And I couldn't believe how large the fire load was, but also how little they had to uh, put these fires out. And, you know, if you saw the first film, you'll know that some, there's a pretty tragic fire where they show up and there's no water because there's no water pressure. Yeah, and, is that uh, where they showed up with that pumper that they weren't allowed to use? Yeah, and a, a little girl died. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah. that's, all they, that's all they had. And um, at the time... The city of Detroit and the fire department tended to just be this, like, like most things with the news cycle. Like, uh, they they never got coverage for the great the great stuff that was happening. They just got coverage when something went wrong. So, uh, we showed up and uh, spent a lot of time trying to convince the city to just like, hey, let us come in for five days. We'll film at the firehouse, see if it's a good match, and. It, it, it seems ridiculous to say it now, but the big question we had was, are there enough fires to tell a compelling story? Five days in Detroit could be a, a year's worth of work in some places. Well, during uh, your documentary, well, I mean, you, you said that there was 30,000 fire calls uh, yeah, so, a year for uh, Detroit. Yeah, so we got there in 2009, checked into the hotel, and I looked out the window, and there was a fuel oil depot on fire down the street. 
didn't unpack, grabbed the camera, started filming, never got unpacked. We ended up doing two 24-hour shifts with Engine 50, which is kind of the star of both films. And we went to, in those shifts, I think we went to like 20 structure fires in two shifts. Um, and which as you guys know, you know, there's some rural departments. You guys might not see that many in a decade. <laughs> um, and, you know, buildings blowing up and watching these guys running out, and my mind is just totally blown. So we cut together a, um, like a 10 minute little promo with the question, like we thought it was pretty compelling, but I don't know what are other people going to think. Um, and, uh, we took that promo and pitched it to every broadcaster you've ever heard of every film financier or studio or distributor you've ever heard of. And everybody passed. <laughs> and they all said the same thing, which is, and eh, nobody wants to see stuff with firefighters. And we thought, really? That's wrong. Um, so <laughs> the people at uh, the people we, at NBC probably have a different uh, opinion of that now. Well, yeah, they do now, but that, <laughs> back, at that time, back then, they no, passed. Yeah, yeah, they passed. I will say, I got from that show. At one point, I even got a call from the executive producer once that show started filming, like asking questions about how we how we did it. But um, so we weren't we didn't want to take no for an answer. And by that point, we had really, you know, we're passionate about the story and the guys we had met, which is, I mean, you know, you spend about five minutes with Dave Parnell and you want, you know, people want to hear what he has to say. And um, he's, sorry, he's Depio, the driver for the first film. Right, and he's retired yeah. in the, the second film. And he's full of one-liners. Um, <laughs> yeah. Every firehouse has a, a guy whole, like that, by the way. Yeah. I have a whole photo album of tattoos firefighters have gotten and sent me photos of with, with his one-liners. Uh, so, so we took that like 10 minute little sort of, you call it like a long trailer, I guess. And just like made it public and put a donate now button under it. And, uh, people just started donating money and it ended up becoming, I think to date it still is, the largest film ever funded entirely with charitable donations. And so we just kind of, as the money came in, we just kept going and filming and it ended up being a really great way to make a movie because we would be posting like videos and, you know, Hey, here's who we're filming right now or behind the scenes and things. And some videos you would post and you might get like a couple of hundred likes. Some videos you posted, and we get like 1.7 million views. And so you got, we got to sort of in real time see what storylines and things were compelling for people, which is such a unique opportunity. Um, and then uh, premiered the movie at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York, which is like one of the big film festivals that won the Audience Award, got great reviews, great press. And then nobody wanted to buy it. <laughs> At all. Nobody. Uh, and uh, we thought, really? Again? We made this movie that got like a 10-minute standing ovation and like won the award and all this stuff. So we kind of did the same thing. We rented a theater um, for two screenings in uh, Philadelphia during the um, I'm trying to think, during one of the union conferences. And we kind of said, all right, well, let's let's see if anybody shows up. And then we ended up like selling out four screenings and everybody wanted to like more screenings. So we started just booking more theaters and ended up ultimately releasing the film ourselves in 170 cities over 11 months. And then selling like, geez, like 60,000 DVDs and Blu-rays and was number one movie on iTunes repeatedly. And it did have an audience. That I think uh, really like mainstream media tends to ignore and or dismiss. And the, these stories you saw it in the told. theater, didn't you, Steve? Yeah, Did I you uh, go see it in Chicago. Yeah, uh, we we saw. You know, we were one of the guys. Uh, me and the group of firemen I were working with at the time that saw this on uh, social media. You know, all the videos on social media were like, "Man, I want to see this movie." And we like. 
a um, couple guys I knew were had friends that went out to work in Detroit or people that we would go maybe out there and fan a little bit. And uh, yeah. they're like, man, these guys, they're, they're, real, they're the real deal out there, you know? So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, we went up, uh, I think it was in Orland, uh, south suburbs of Chicago. There was a theater screening out there, and we, we all went out there and saw it. It was awesome. And it, there was like a Q&A afterwards, I believe. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah so, with some of the guys from the movie, I think. Yeah, so it was pretty cool. Uh, it was a, it was a good time. So, Tom, after watching the documentary, the original one, I, I'm kind of shocked that you're not a Detroit native, because uh, you're a lot of your documentaries are Detroit based. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm a maybe I. I, I don't think anybody gets to be a Detroit native unless they really are born there. And you get, you <laughs> I get definitely that, get, I get that feeling get for called people. out if you claim to be, yeah. and, or if you have like the, the D on your, on your sleeve. Um, so I, I wouldn't dare claim that, but it's, um, you know, it's a place I love and I've spent a big chunk of the last 12 years in making movies about firefighters and other, other people there. And I just think it's become, a really important place because when we first got there in 2009, it was, I think that the message was like, can you believe that this is happening in America? Right. And now I'm doing a, a finishing up a documentary about paramedics around the country right now. So I'm in all sorts of places from Sparks to Baton Rouge to like rural volunteer departments in Virginia and it's gone from, can you believe this is happening in America and Detroit being an anomaly to that being kind of the standard. You go to any city now and it's starting to look like Detroit and you have infrastructure issues and tax base issues and skyrocketing crime and homelessness and, oh my God, fentanyl and opioid addiction. And um, that's been something that's been, I think, really surprising to me. Um, to see how Detroit went from being a cautionary tale to that tale starting to come true in a lot of like urban America. Living here in Chicago, that's kind of the talk about a cautionary tale. We have conversations here in Chicago that we could potentially be the next Detroit. Uh, we don't want to believe it, but I'm sure there were people in Detroit who didn't believe that that could happen to them either. And then you're looking at, you know, a population that went from almost 2 million to less than half a million. Uh, yeah. I think it was ended eight, up at around 700,000. Yeah. Um, people from Detroit though are extremely proud still uh, to be from Detroit and like, and it kind of like, you know, from Chicago, like, but like, you people outside of Detroit will talk bad about Detroit, but you can't do that in front of people from Detroit. <laughs> like, like if your brother, like you and your brother can fight all you want, you know, and talk shit to each other all you want. But if somebody messes with your brother kind of deal, you know, yeah. and then I feel like that that's how people from Detroit are kind of like, you know, that's how uh, most people who grow up in the city, that's how they uh, in Chicago are. But yeah, I, I, I get that sense of like, uh, you know, I, I'm from Detroit, so I can talk shit about Detroit, but you can't. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like it's like if you drive a car that's like an old beater and you love it, but it's constantly breaking down. You complain about it. But if somebody else gives you a hard time about it, it's on, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, that old beater was built in Detroit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. I'm still running. I mean, I, I love Detroit. I think Detroit's an amazing town. And I mean, I'm not, I'm like not a glutton for punishment, although it might seem like it if you watch both of those movies but um it's uh it's a great place full of the best people i've ever met in my life i mean it's you know a tough tough places also i think tend to weed out a lot of people too yeah yeah um but like also if you look i was just looking at crime stats yesterday and for years detroit i mean everybody knew what was the most dangerous city in america going to be detroit detroit year after year it dropped to fourth now you know, who's that, up, who's number that, one, Louisiana or New Orleans, uh, St. Louis, St. Louis. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Like I was just filming paramedics in Baton Rouge, which is above Detroit. Now. I think it's number three, just yeah. above it. And yeah, it's, I, I, I've encountered more dangerous stuff in Baton Rouge than I ever did in Detroit. 
Yeah, um, there are some shady, shady areas down there. Real. Yeah, bad. and that's that's not a that's not a knock, but I, it, I think my point is just that I hope you know. I'm, I think it's a great time for the next film to, for this new film to be out because it's something also kind of incredible happened in Detroit, which is. I mean, a lot more tough stuff happened. Largest municipal bankruptcy in American history. Huge cuts to the pension plans for the firefighters and the guys injured on the job. But at the same time, they're hiring again. And they're finally started doing medical calls. And as hard as those things are, you start to see the city and the department evolve in like a way they have to, to grow into whatever they're going to be next. Because it's never going to go back to what it was. Um, and I'm hoping that like other people can start to follow suit. Now you had a change of administration from the time that you started filming, right? Did you have any pushback? We've gone through now. I think it's, we're on our 10th fire commissioner and, (laughs) um, you know, a few different, couple of different mayors. Yeah. Every, so this thing would happen. Every single time a new commissioner came in, it was like, well, I did. In the beginning, every time a new commissioner came in, we'd have to like go to city hall, dress up. I'd have to find a tie and sit down and show them what we'd been filming and explain to them why this wasn't going to be a bad thing and why it, we weren't, you know, hey, I'm not Michael Moore. I'm not here to make like a hatchet job. I'm just here to show the work. And, um, Every time I thought this is it, we're getting shut down. And somehow we convinced them to let us keep filming. And then it sort of became a thing where you get to like commissioner five or six. And it was just sort of like, yeah, those are the burn guys. They've just been here forever. Just don't <laughs> let them keep going. And, and, uh, I find it, you know, I find it hard to believe that you would show some of the things. Uh, I'm talking about the original one now. Because you guys really take that commissioner to task. And he's the guy who came from California and he wanted these changes. And he's not painted in the greatest light uh, with how he dealt with his guys, in my opinion. And Um, he just, I don't know if it's what he wanted to do with you guys or if he thought that your documentary would help his mission. Because he, you know, from watching it, it, I didn't, I didn't have a good feeling about him. Um, so I think Commissioner Austin actually is a great guy. We're friends. He's a guy that he's the reason that, that film, our film got finished. He's always been incredibly supportive, showed him an advanced cut of the movie. And he just said, doesn't make me look great, but feels honest. You guys do what you want to do. Like he came to the premiere. He got yelled at by people. He tried to have <laughs> conversations with them. And like had plenty of conversations after the movie that were really friendly. Like I think he's honestly, I think, I think he's a great guy. I think he was an incredibly smart guy. I think he was on a kamikaze mission. Um, and every single thing he said would need to happen in order for the department to evolve has now happened. So he also, I think ended up being right. So that being said, you know, there's some stuff in that first movie where his bedside manner isn't the best. He comes to Engine 50 and just like, just like pistol whips those guys practically. Yeah, He's so right. upset. <laughs> and and as an audience, you're seeing the world through their perspective. You know how hard they're working. You know how much heart they have and how much they're getting done with so little. So to have him show up, I think that's when you know, like, hey, this is like this. There's not going to be a whole lot more dates in this relationship, you know? Yeah. Well, I guess if you put uh, it that way, because that, that, that's how it's viewed in the original one, that these guys are busting their ass with nothing. This guy comes over, and now he's taking the men to task. But if he said, admittedly, yeah, I don't look great, but it's honest, I got a little more respect for him in that. I guess, you know, radical times call for radical changes, and if he had the nuts to take that on <laughs> more power to him. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he, there were some points in the movie where I was like, fuck, you know, like 
the last thing these guys need, you know, they're on their 20th fire of the day or whatever. And then this guy shows up in his suit and he's like, uh, you guys are doing it wrong. Yeah. And I think that is what rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Cause most of the people who are watching your documentary aren't viewing it from management. Absolutely. But I, one of the things that we felt was really important was to show the management perspective. And we get even further into that in the new film with uh, his replacement, who's the guy that's come up not from Detroit fire, but from the Detroit police department. And he ends up instituting a lot of the things commissioner Austin wanted to do, but he's part of the culture. And I think he knows how to position it and he knows the mentality there and he's not an outsider. Um, And I think as a result, he's able to, to get, a lot of things into motion that Austin wasn't able to, you know, and it's, and I think that, I think that management job is tough. Is it, is it as hard as running into a burning building? No, of course, of course not, you know? Um, but I think it's easy to forget, like, there's just no money. Yeah. You know, because one of my favorite scenes in the first film is you've seen, you've seen what a like drill sergeant, commissioner austin is and how there's has this disconnect but then you go to like the shop where it's just there's more broken rigs in the shop than there are out on the street and there's like no money to repair any of them and he just kind of wanders through there like how do you deal with this and i think that that sort of speaks to like the larger issues that everybody in the city's been battling from the mayor you know even like uh even how they're like dispatched at the house for fires like they don't have or in the film, in the first film, they don't have this modern day dispatch system like most other people. Well, those have. guys are fixing it themselves. Yeah, and then like w- they do like the can of pop with the pennies in it, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, Mar- I think it was, I think marbles got to be more popular. But how, explain to the audience how that because like in 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 other departments, you know the you get the tone out, you get the alarm, and then the speaker cracks, and it's either an automated voice or somebody, or an actual dispatcher, telling you where you're going and what you're doing. <laughs> And then, you know, some places, you know, you ring the bell or they got a, 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 a talkie that you, you respond on. And tell everybody how they did it in Detroit. So in Detroit, there you go into the watch room, you know, with the cot and the chair. And there's a dot matrix printer that looks like what you probably printed your history report out on in sixth grade. <laughs> and as the paper feeds through it, there's two systems. There's either one where it pushes like a little metal hinge down. So when it connects to the other half of the hinge, it sparks and sets off the bell or that some of them with a dot matrix printer, there's literally just a can of marble sitting on it. So as it rolls forward, the can falls over and everybody hears the can fall over. And then <laughs> that's just part one though. Then they get in the rig. There's no computer. This is, this is like back in for the first film. And then I can talk about like one of the really positive developments there. Um, then they get in the rig, no computer, no Thomas guide, no map, no anything. And it, the drive, like Dave Parnell, he just, how does he know where to go? He has every street and every fire hydrant location memorized. And that's how they get that. And, and, uh, that's just like, you know, mind blowing. And, it, and they're effective. He, he's never wrong about where these things are <laughs> because part of the problem is he has to have memorized because so many of the street signs have been stolen. Like, or flipped or good with stolen or flipped yeah. around, right? So that the cops, yeah. if they steal them or and flip them around, so the cops or so they think they can confuse the cops about yeah, where mean, they're going. He, those guys, I mean, street by street, could tell you exactly which houses are still there too, because you might go to like a six, seven square block area, and there's like one house left because everything else has been burned down, um, and the fire hydrant is not necessarily near the house, and. A lot of times there's no water pressure. It's um, it's pretty bananas. But then, you know, filming over the 10 years since the first movie came out, something I thought was really cool in the new film is we go back and you see that crazy, like, original rig with sparks. It looks like, you know, Dr. Frankenstein's printer or something. And uh, now they're in the modern age. There's a giant TV and the map pops up and it shows you all the fire hydrants and it tells you what the call is and they've all got it on their iPhones. And uh, it's a company called Bricks, B-R-Y-X. And um, it's, they're like, the. I mean, I don't want to say the cutting edge, but they're up to speed. 
on well, that technology. If, if Bricks is out there wanting to sponsor any podcasts, so. <laughs> yeah. just saying. Just I saying. know a good one. Yeah, I, I know, know a really good one. Good one. I, I just talked to them yesterday, so I will, pa- I will pass that along what? for sure. <laughs> You've all um, of a sudden become my favorite guest of the year. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so it's like things that it's Detroit. Actually, I think the new film, as hard as it is, you see like that they're making progress. And I think it's a really hopeful story in the end. You know, the first film ends and it's like Parnell retires and the bell rings because that's what happened. That's what happens there. And they like drive off into the night and you walk out of the theater and you're just like, those guys are fighting a fire right now. And then you, <laughs> you, finish the, you finish the new film and there's like a new, new, uh, class of firefighters finally and they're young guys and yeah they definitely don't see the world the way the old guys do um but that's the future you know and they're they're good guys and they're hard workers and they're going to figure it out and um they're not going into the fires as much anymore they're being smarter and having had a whole lot of friends on the detroit fire department that have died in the last 10 years i i think that makes sense you know i mean you watch that first movie you don't see a whole lot of SDBAs on those guys. And um, because they can't, because imagine going up on 10 roofs a night with that big old tank on your back and trying to do these, just rolling from one right to the next. So well, it's, well, that's one of the things that Chicago has in common with Detroit, uh, not wearing packs to the roof. Yeah. Uh, a lot of other departments do it. And I'm not saying one is, the right way compared to another, but they're very similar in that way. Plus, I don't know if you got the sense of, because you actually highlighted in the original documentary about the pride that these guys have from an interior attack from going inside. And oh, they, yeah. they were very prideful of that tactic of, you know, not uh, just standing outside and dumping water. Uh, but actually fighting from the inside out, which is a, a huge source of pride for departments like Detroit, Chicago. Um, but well, you, you do highlight that in the film. Right. And I like the one the one part of the film where they're uh, talking about, you know, we got to go in. We don't know who's in these buildings and who's not in these buildings. What What's a vacant dwelling? You don't know what a vacant dwelling is. And then uh, they actually were on a like an ambulance assist where – uh, the basement was flooded with ice, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and they're helping. That the, guy uh, was down there. And, yeah, like who the heck is living down there? Well, so, somebody is. Well, the, it was the commissioner that changed that tactic, right? Where he was like, "Yeah, we're, we're fighting the fires from the outside. If it comes in as a vacant building, that they weren't going to go in." And that's when those guys at the firehouse were like, "We don't. How do we know it's vacant?" Right. And it just—it well, was like and, a, not comical because this guy's having a uh, a medical emergency. He's having the worst day of his life right now. But this guy's literally living in a basement that's like flooded with ice. Yeah, that would everybody would assume from the outside it would be vacant, yeah. but it's not. But like for where we work, how many t- how many times Say, do you go in an right. abandoned building and there's you for a person and right. they're there, or you think the building's abandoned and it's not. It's yeah. fully lived in yeah. <laughs> and TVs what, and everything. By us, yeah. what do typically those abandoned buildings are used for? Where are they used for? We we find we find them, you know, heroin. People are doing that's they find these abandoned buildings and they do heroin. Peer support is so important, and I, I I've realized that just over my lifespan that you have to be able to talk to someone. And if you're going through the mortgage process and you also have someone who has shared life experiences and you're able to talk to them about the shit you're going through. Like, I didn't feel embarrassed about asking Josh a question because yeah. Josh knows where I come from. You know, I'm like, hey, uh, I know this sounds dumb, but blah, 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 blah. I'm just a fireman. I don't know anything about banks mm-hmm. or mortgages or right. blah, blah, blah. I try my best, but that's not really where my, you know, my forte is. And he understand he understands that because I think a majority yeah. of the firemen out there, cops and paramedics, and like we're so preoccupied with other things. It's like, dude, I just want a cheap loan and I don't want to get screwed. How, yeah. how does this work? Can you can you help me out? And he's like, he understands that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. I I, I love what we do. This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories brought to you by Rescue One CBD. 
a firefighter-owned company taking care of first responders with their CV oil that's guaranteed to be 0.000% THC, making it safe for the job. Enter promo code BRAVEST and you'll receive 25% off your order. Again, type in the promo code BRAVEST and you'll get 25% off all Rescue One products. Go to rescueonecbd.com and place your order. You were actually explaining to me that you've been getting a lot of response from the listeners here about benefits of your CBD oil. Yes. Um, yeah, our CBD oil and the topical. And, um, you know, we, we've been a sponsor of the show for a little bit. I've been a sh- fan of the show for a while. And um, obviously, that kind of started the ball rolling where, you know, Chicago area firefighters have started using the product but then you know i can tell that you know the word of mouth is spreading and and i i just i get so much good feedback i get such great responses and i love seeing that part of it it uh it feels really good because it's why i started the business it's it's uh to help our guys and girls out there and seeing how it's it's working is fantastic so um for everybody that's you know supported us and uh, been loyal to the brand thank you so much and you know, honestly, it's, uh, I think it's, it's a huge benefit for us. You know, I think that, um, you know, we're going to be, um, on the cutting edge of something great. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, it ran like when they were occupied, there's a variety of reasons, right? Squatters, uh, or it could just be a lot of people make their window, they make their homes look abandoned and the windows boarded up, but then like those stuff plywood's on hinges because they don't want to get robbed. So they make it look like nobody's there. So nobody comes in and bothers them and they're, they're legitimate homeowners. You think the missus would go um, for it? <laughs> just put, just slap and ply, I got really expensive right? windows. Just slap some plywood um, on some hinges. We're good, hon. And you, and you do never know. Right. And I also, when you look at the fire load, I mean, imagine, you know, we, I, we went, First night with engine 50, we go to 10 structure fires. They got to put them out fast. They don't have even have the luxury of like, of, uh, you know, spending three hours dumping water on it from the sidewalk. Yeah, cause um, they, got they, another, did, they got another job waiting for them almost. Yeah, we had, I can't tell you the number of times we would drive by a working fire to get to the next fire. And plenty of fires we went to, that was the only engine there because they're just, they didn't have more than one engine to send. Most fires probably. Um, so it's like sometimes the ladder truck's going to one and the engine's going to another one and you're driving past the third one uh, that, that there's another engine going to. It's, um, so it's just, I mean, those guys made the most of what they had, but then the end result is, you know, these guys are getting lung cancer or they're having heart attacks or just the the toll it takes you see some of that in the new film with parnell retired and him going to the doctor and trying to figure out how to deal with the arthritis he has after you know thousands of freezing cold nights cracking open fire hydrants and uh i think as the city kept chipping away at their health care even for guys catastrophically injured on the job like doogie um from the first film i think it's like how can you be expected to keep doing what you see them doing the first film night after night when you know that if you get hurt, the city's not going to be there to even cover your medical bills necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I, I can't even imagine you, you follow Brendan in the first one and it was always in the back of my mind watching the first one that this guy has catastrophic injury and he's relying on a department and a city that's already financially bankrupt. <laughs> that was as scary as anything else watching that, uh, the documentary. Yeah, and I think the average person, one of the things we try to get into in the film, because the average person who's not a firefighter is like, why should these guys get pensions and get their health care? It's like, well, because you guys are uninsurable <laughs> through like traditional means because of the job you do. So it's it's not... It's not there as a bonus. It's there as a way that like people can do this job and survive, you know. And um, I, I hope that'll be an education for people as well. There's a lot of things we didn't have a chance to get into in the first film. We filmed something like a thousand hours just for the first movie, let alone what we've been filming the last ten years. And you know, you end up with an 86-minute movie. There's a lot of characters and stories, and a lot of the questions that you know you get asked over and over at, at all those screenings that 
you, you know, you make another movie to try to answer some of those. Yeah. Now that that's done, it's like, oh my God, there's this many more questions. Do you make a third movie? I don't know. My kids are going to have to finish the third one. <laughs> Keep you, going. Are you still talk? Are you still talk to uh, Doogie? Uh, we emailed the the other day. I um I try to. I mean, you know, he's he had to go to all these all these screenings and stuff. I I, I try to I try to respect everybody's privacy. So I talk. I've been talking to Parnell quite a bit, and Dave Miller, and some of the other some of the other guys you see in the the second film. Hey Tom. Did you start off with the narrative that you wanted? It almost seems like the documentary is more an, an indictment of Detroit government as much as it's about the Detroit Fire Department. Did you pivot on that, or was that your intention from the get-go? Did it start off as that, or did it kind of, but that was just how the story played out? I was just how the story played out, and, you know, with the first film, I really we really tried hard for there not to be like a bad guy. You know, you watch backdraft at the end of the day, there's like an arsonist doing that. Right. And, um, I think the situation there was just so dysfunctional and it, and it had been going on for so long. It was almost impossible to like blame anybody who's currently there. Like they all want the city to succeed and they all want people to not get hurt and to be able to do their jobs. But there were just so many problems that, you know, I mean, we talked to the multiple mayors and certainly you see um, Commissioner Austin in the first film. You see a couple subsequent commissioners in, in the next film. And uh, there were a lot in between that just weren't there long enough for us to film. You had guys that were sometimes just there for a couple of, of weeks. And um, it was just the situation was the problem. And everybody, every single person there inherited it. And some people you know, did better jobs than others of like navigating and figuring out how to improve things. What was your crew when you guys were out there going to fires with, uh, engine 50 or whoever you were with for that day? Um, so we typically had a crew of about eight to 10 people and sometimes we'd all be together. Yeah. Because you get to these fires and the guys put them out so fast, you ended up needing like two camera people, two sound people. um, you have two directors so it's you have end up having to have cameras in a lot of places to just capture those fires sometimes you just have like a couple of minutes before it's out uh, and then sometimes we would split up too because when we started i mean obviously we had no idea what was going to happen i mean when we started doogie and the commissioner who were two of the three main characters in the first film we didn't even know about them and um doogie doogie kind of popped onto our radar when he got hurt partway through filming the first movie. Um, although Brenna had known him prior, but, um, so we started out filming about 30 different firefighters, uh, people in city government, other people affected by fire, some civilians, uh, not knowing who would have something happen to them. And then as people's stories sort of came to the surface, we, we started to focus on them. So it was this massive, um, undertaking and you know there's guys we filmed with for a year every bit as much as as like doogie or parnell that maybe have like a line in the first movie and then with some in some cases like a firefighter named terrell hardaway we got a chance to spend more time with him in the second film you know you you're talking about the one-liners my favorite line in the uh original documentary was from at the time uh captain doherty where he said uh that there are cowboys in a big rodeo yeah what he's talking and it about. Re- they really are right in, and in that original documentary for sure i mean i yeah i can't think of a better definition of being a cowboy than these guys out in detroit with very little and going to thirty thousand fires yeah, it was unreal. I mean, we once, it's in the first film. We were going to a fire one time and the engine caught on fire. I mean, it was crazy. Um, I, uh, one of our follow cars caught on fire at one point. It's, um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, there's nothing like it, and I don't know if there will ever be anything like that again. Uh, and time did they let you uh, take the pipe at any point? <laughs> you, you definitely put out a fire. During the course I, of filming this documentary, tell me that you did. There's no way. I, I did not want to. 
Um, so Why not? I said, no, I, we did. You wanted I to maintain your objective documentary status. No, I didn't want to embarrass myself. Like <laughs> falling on my ass. Um, they, uh, they, they, they had to have offered though. I if, if 100% yeah, these they guys are like, listen, if you're going to film us, get over here. Yeah. Get over here. <laughs> yeah. We went into a couple. There's, there's a fire in the, um, in the new film that, um, it's, uh, it looks abandoned and, and then you go in and there's like some drug paraphernalia and stuff. And, uh, that one, they're like, come on in. It's okay. And film. And I'm inside with one of the camera guys and Brenda's outside with the other one. And I see the crew outside just like screaming and waving at us to get out of there. And it turned out the whole, the whole basement was still rolling. And it's just, <laughs> I learned, I learned from that. Like I have a whole different risk tolerance than guys who are Detroit firefighters. So I learned, I learned my lesson. One of the other things I wanted to talk to you about because I, I was completely intrigued is um, the music that you decided to put to this documentary. All uh, all local bands, all local artists, yeah. right? Because the first one and like it blew my mind that I had no idea that Iggy Pop was from Detroit or from Michigan. And yeah, I fact, think he, um, that's the begin the first song in uh, the original Burn, correct? Yeah, and that was the first song we got because um, Brenna, who I made the film with, she had done a bunch of music documentaries, including one about Iggy Pop, and she'd been an editor for some big music magazines in Detroit, like Ray Gun. Oh, so, yeah, you had an in then, huh? Yeah, and then once once uh, Iggy came on board, he actually wrote a song for the movie that was going to be in the end credits, but he broke his arm and couldn't finish it in time. So once he came on board, we just started pounding the pavement and um, getting these, getting these other Detroit acts. I think there's two songs that aren't from Detroit band because I couldn't just find the right song. But you fit but, um, your, you replaced your final song with what I think should have been the final song. Of the original. Stranglehold. Stranglehold. A great song. One of the yeah, best songs ever, song. a local guy, and that's what you finish with it. That was a perfect song to the ending. Yeah, he's uh, the only. But the only downside was then right after the movie came out, Ted Nugent, who did the song, like came out like slamming firefighting unions, and so I was like, <laughs> oh, really? "Come on, yeah. guy!" Did he really? Yeah, there's actually, yeah, there's actually a crazy thing that happened where we started. We were releasing the film theatrically, and Jack White from the White Stripes. Went, he was a Detroiter, came and saw the movie in the theater, and his, like, I don't know, it was somebody from his, like, team tracked us down and called us up and was like, Jack's really bummed that you didn't include any of his music in the movie. Can you, can you like, put one of his songs in? So we, like, went back and put, put one in, which is, when does that ever happen? You yeah, because it, it, so there was screenings without um, Jack's songs in there? Yeah, he has two songs in the movie now. Like, the first, like when we premiered at Tribeca and I think like the first few other screenings, those, uh, I can't remember what songs were in there, but there were, there were different songs in there. So it was, uh, that was pretty cool. That never happens. That is awesome. usually the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. And all those artists, I mean, they didn't make, I mean, we like paid a few hundred bucks to each one just to cover the like legal expenses. Like they all basically gave us that music, which was pretty spectacular. Tell everybody at this point how they can watch Burn and then Burn X. Where where are they sure. available? So if you go to DetroitFireFilm.org, you can find a bunch of links. And uh, both movies are available on DVD and Blu-ray. They're these massive like two-disc sets that I think between them have like 10 hours of extras um, that you can only get there or on Vimeo on demand. There's a link on the website if you want to rent it with all the extras. And then you can rent them on uh, iTunes, Apple TV, Amazon Prime, Vudu, uh, and Google TV. And the if you get it on Vimeo, that's viewable anywhere in the world, as are the DVDs and Blu-rays. Uh, iTunes is in English-speaking countries. And then uh, the other ones are just in the... U.S. 
And um, I got to brag, uh, the movie for uh, Burn X, the new movie is currently the number one documentary on iTunes and Apple TV. So that's like pretty cool. We beat hey, the, congratulations. Uh, da- David Bowie and Selena Gomez documentaries that are out right now. Who so, the hell are they? Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we're so, moving into uh, a generation where there are people out there who have no idea who David Bowie is. Or Iggy Pop. Oh, don't get me don't get me started. My son's fourteen and loves classic rock. And his friends, like some of them don't know who the Beatles are. Oh my it's, god. Uh, speaking of which, when so we originally had this scheduled for last week, but uh Steve and I both got deathly ill with whatever the hell was going around. Yeah, at here your advanced on my a- at your advanced age, I was very scared yeah. about what was yeah, going on. Yeah, I happen. was I was scared as well. But uh we put it off and I was talking to you and did you go to the concert yet? Or is that still coming? No, going. It's uh, this weekend in Boston, Lemonhead. So he is going to go see Lemonheads. In Boston. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. You told me. <laughs> How badass of a concert is that? Gonna that's going to be? be awesome. It better be because it's cold here. I'm used <laughs> to warmth in California. And that's like, that's where you currently live now, right? You live in California. Yeah, I'm from Oregon. I live in California because it's. Um, I also edit other people's movies because this documentary takes forever finish so i'm, I'm kind of where the work is you know yeah well, now one of the one of the other documentaries that i wanted to talk to you about and it, <laughs> it, it kind of made me think that you were a detroit guy is i know where this is going yeah <laughs> i mean it's you followed the juggalos seven years yeah with um insane clown posse it, it does <laughs> blow me away that you know now that you're your story's unraveling here. Guy from Oregon goes and does this documentary and follows ICP around, and you're basically a juggalo. You're I basically got, I, embedded. I, <laughs> I mean, seven years, you says, right? He's got yeah, jugg- he's got was, ICP in his veins now. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know every song. I have a juggalo nickname. Got a lot of juggalos on my Facebook page. Oh my uh, I get. I can. Uh, I got a place to stay if I go to anywhere in most major cities. Um, yeah. So it was like, we did, so we did burn and oh, how are we going to follow that up? Riding around on fire trucks and um, love Detroit, hoping to do another Detroit doc. And it turned out the guys from insane clown posse had seen burn in the theater and were fans of it. No kidding. So, That's um, how you got hooked up with those guys. They, they watched burn. Uh, so they had watched it. And then Brenna who, who were, she, she knew ICP from her time in like the nineties running a music magazine in Detroit, read an article about them that was really interesting, talking about like their next step. So she just cold called their office, told them who we were. They were like, oh yeah, we love Burn," And said like, hey, we're thinking about maybe making a documentary about you. And they said, actually your timing is great because tomorrow we're having a press conference at the ACLU offices in downtown Detroit and announcing we're suing the FBI because they put us on the gang list. And we were like, Great. And so we like scrambled the crew together. This is awesome. Yeah. Well, (laughs) you don't really associate the two, you know, with First Amendment and insane clown posse. But these guys had a legitimate gripe and say what you want about the band. But I mean, they're really out there basically fighting for First Amendment rights in their way. Oh, 100%. I mean, and we just thought, oh, we'll film for a few months, and this is a crazy story. Like, the FBI gang listed a million people, first time ever, uh, just because they're fans of a band. And we just thought that, like, oh, well, this story, how, how long is this going to last? People realize that's nuts. And, you know, after seven years, I mean, the case, it's, I think it's one circuit below the Supreme Court. It goes to the Supreme Court, I guess I have to make another Juggalo movie, but... Um, <laughs> they're, not, they're, not just, uh, they're not just a band, though. They had a short no. stint as professional wrestlers too. Yeah, WWE. They had a. They've had TV shows. Um, I mean, they still have a huge following, and like I, I, I mean, I knew like the Miracles video. Like I knew as much as the average person knows. Um, you know, I knew about the Gathering, which is like as bananas as you probably heard. And um, but like the film really does reflect what the experience was like. I mean, getting to know those guys and going home with them and interviewing uh, Violent Jay's mom and going home with the other Juggalos. And we're like <laughs> filming this lovely couple in Ohio who are uh, 
you would never think that they're juggalos. They're, that's why we're filming them. They seem like the opposite. They're, uh, they're physical therapists. And while we're filming, you know, one of them, her boss asked, well, what's this about? And she explains that they're juggalos and it's about insane clown posse. She got fired on the spot. Oh my God. And Did, just, she listens to a band. Yeah. I mean, so as we were filming, this is part of the reason it went on seven years, crazy stuff started happening. Like, uh, we filmed a guy in Arizona who's, a uh, child got taken away and put in a group home because he had ICP posters on his wall and that's considered gang paraphernalia. Um, we, people lost their jobs. Uh, you gotta, you're wearing an ICP t-shirt. You're walking down the street. It's probable cause the police can and do pull over, photograph you, gang list you, which means if you get arrested, it's an automatic gang enhancement. It means you can't join the military, can't get student loans, can't get financial aid. Um, all these people were having their lives just like turned upside down and we happened to be there right in the middle of it. And then through the ACLU coming on board and this going from being like a media joke to people realizing, Oh wow, if this can happen to them, it can happen to anybody and discovering the FBI doesn't have, they don't really have any criteria for what makes a gang. It's totally arbitrary. And it's been, that movie was that came. So that came out last year and, um, it's cool because it played like red states, blue states, every type of possible person and watched it and just said, no, that's bad. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's nobody, nobody wants to think that they can get arrested because they go to a church youth group or like wearing a baseball hat that also maybe some gang members use to identify themselves. What's the so, name of, what's the name of the uh, flick? Um, so that movie's called the United States of insanity. Okay. And, uh, it's not on Netflix because they were too scared of it, but it's, I mean, literally everywhere else. You can watch it for free on Tubi or Freebie or you can rent it. And it's good. And it's definitely like a, a Detroit movie. And uh, there's, a, there's a couple of uh, burn, burn, sort of burn Easter eggs in it that make people <laughs> pay attention to. Well, Tom, without spoiling Burn X, can you give us just a little um, update on some of the guys that we know from Burn to get us to uh, tune into uh, Burn X. Like, uh, you, yeah. you've talked about Dave Parnell, who retired. We talked a little bit about Doogie. Uh, I imagine uh, Chief Doherty is moved up in the, if he hasn't retired by now. He's got uh, yeah, a he, pretty big guy up in uh, Detroit right now, right? Uh, yeah, he retired a few years ago. He had moved up to being, uh, I believe he ended up being Chief of Department. And um, before he retired, which was pretty cool to see. Um, he seemed like having, a really you know, good officer. Yeah, I mean, he's not just an officer, but like, just as like a manager of people and a leader. I mean, that guy's a master class in how to, how to, how to treat people. Um, great guy. And um, so Dave Miller, who's in the first film quite a bit, is in the second film. As well, he's still at Engine 50. I think he set a record. I think he's been there like almost 30 years. And, um, you know, it's been fun watching him move up. And there's, we started off on the first film filming a lot of families as well. And it's pretty cool. In the second film, you get to see some of that where we started filming. We've been filming the last 10 years, 12 years um, with these same people. You see people who are little kids in the beginning, like in the case of Terrell Hardaway's son, Brandon. Uh, we're then there when he graduates and gets his badge as a Detroit firefighter. Um, and a lot of these guys, you know, run where their dads ran. And um, there's some pretty rough stuff that happens to some of the, to some of the guys. And there's some like amazing stuff. And there's a, there's something, there's a couple of things with Dave Parnell that uh, people are pretty, 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 pretty happy about when they see in terms of Dave goes through some more tough things. And then, um, there's some pretty neat stuff that happens toward the end of the movie in his life that we got to be there for. We do a thing on this podcast where, you know, we have a guy in and we ask them, uh, our, our one uh, co-host here who's not available today, that's kind of his thing. He usually asks them about uh, the funniest prank that ever got pulled during your career. Uh, I imagine that spending that much time with Detroit that you've had to stumble upon a couple of pranks that these guys have done to each other or did they do any with you? Oh yeah. I mean, I got pied 
in my face on my birthday. <laughs> right when I'm in the middle of trying to film something. We had like an RV we dumped in their parking lot to like stage out of and uh, came back to that plenty of times and found, uh, you know, some brown surprises. Got you hidden around it. Um, I think I had to burn my sleeping bag at one point. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the, I, I learned to always like look before walking out from under like an eve. Oh, because you'd want water on you. Yeah. But you, you would you, dump water you, out? How do they not know you had like expensive camera shit with you or whatever? Dude, don't don't the, care. I'm the director. I'm the jackass that isn't carrying the expensive uh, stuff. Oh, okay. So, yeah, You're like go. an easy target. Yeah. <laughs> he was um, unprotected. There you go. Yeah. But uh, you understand the that the culture not, is that, you know, if, they, if they're if they doing that to you, you're accepted. I hope you're so. You're one of the guys, so I, I hope they gave it to you pretty oh, yeah. good. They did. I mean, the water is not bad. It's when there's a, there's a bag of flour that follows it. <laughs> <laughs> It's when um, they're not. It's when they're not picking on you that you gotta worry. Yeah, I definitely. Uh, or when it's quiet, you know how you're like, wait a minute, it's way too quiet here. Where is everybody? Did you ever? You did you ever say nervous. that to the guys on a quiet day? Be like, man, sure is quiet around here. Oh, I'm sure. Like I got, I got pleased. I think I got set up so many times. Did they beat your ass sure when stuff. you said that? <laughs> no, sure is quiet. It's like yeah, kind well, of a no no. Right. I mean. It's weird. As busy as they are, there's so many unknowns. We had plenty of 24-hour shifts where nothing happened to them. And then, you know, of course, the day after you leave, they're like, oh, my God, you know, a train <laughs> derailed. Um, well, saying uh, it, saying that it sure is quiet is the same as, like, talking to a pitcher in the middle of a no-hitter. Oh, completely. Or what's yeah. what's the Shakespeare uh, play you're not supposed to say? Uh, just one of the Shakespeare plays you're not supposed to say in the theater. There's, there's another one. Oh. Yeah, I forget. I know what you're talking about. I don't know. Uh, it's been a minute since I was in, in reading any Shakespeare. Um, well, Tom, what's your favorite your favorite moment or Macbeth. your favorite thing Mac- about... You don't say Macbeth in the theater. You can't say Macbeth? Oh, that's right. That's you cannot a, say Macbeth in the theater. Like, inside the theater, It's like you saying, it's hey, it's quiet today really? at the fire. Yeah, okay. they don't know. All right. Very frowned upon. Well, for all the people who listen to this podcast who are into Shakespeare, I, I think we're gonna be I think we're gonna be okay. Uh, what is your favorite moment during the filming of uh, both documentaries? Um, that's a really good question. No, you know, nobody's ever asked me that all these years. We're hard hitting, yeah. we're cutting um, edge podcast. We're top notch journalists edge. over here. You're, you're, this is like <laughs> I promised myself I wouldn't cry. Um, uh, I think. On the first film, weirdly, I think it's the like the last scene in the movie where I just we were in the engine bay and it was Parnell's last night and he's sitting on the desk and you can see that like it's like the end of the war movie he like made it but also you can see he's gonna miss it right and I was I was sitting there just thinking like God wouldn't it be wouldn't it be great if the bell went off and then I have an ending to this movie and you know. That it did. So it worked out real well. Um, but he's just sitting there trying to absorb. He's just sitting there trying to absorb the firehouse, the last day, you know, bring in, like, the, everyone's gone. He's just bringing in the emotion, you know, and then here it comes. Well, you got yeah. to realize that, that Dave has been institutionalized, like, legitimately, like, at the end of Shawshank Redemption, where these guys are institutional. Dave Parnell is no different. Yeah, right. He grew up in that fire. He, he lives in his still district. And now his majority of his life is been in that firehouse. And now he's not going to be there. Right. So. Right. But they did the, just the, the videography of it. Or oh, whatever, however you say it, it's like, you're feeling that emotion. Too. I didn't grow up in Detroit. I didn't grow up on his block. I, I didn't. I don't work at that 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 Detroit firehouse. And but I'm feeling his emotion right there. Yeah, when he's sitting there with the dog. Yeah. and the, the tones go off, and, <laughs> and then got, it gets ruined by the tones going. Of off. course, <laughs> it was a perfect yeah. ending. Right. Perfect ending. It was just ridiculous, right? And you see his head just slump. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it. But we've all been. I remember remember graduating from high school, and you're like. What I made it, but what's next? You know, it must be that times of ten thousand. Right, <laughs> right. Um, but that's that's what that's what's been 
fun to be back filming him in the new movie and just seeing like there is life after the firehouse. And and that's what and, we get to see know. in Burn X. Yeah, we spent a bunch of time with him. Okay. Gotta have more Parnell. Yeah, yeah, we want to. I'm we no wanna, uh, Does uh, does uh, Doogie feel any better? Is he making progress? Um, I think Doogie. I mean, basically, he had asked that uh, just we respect his privacy. Oh, so okay. I don't. I probably. I mean, that's there's nothing bad happening. He sounds like he's doing great. I just. Uh, I think. I think after 170 cities of of people asking him how he's doing. He's, he's, oh he's, yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. He's kind of he's kind of just uh, he's just living his life, you know. Fair enough. Yeah, we one hundred percent get that. And you were also I, I saw that Dennis Leary Foundation uh, credit. You guys uh, do any other projects with them? Um, just the first film. It was pretty cool because a portion of all the proceeds go to buy new equipment for Detroit firefighters. So we were able to buy, I think it was $310,000 worth of equipment. We in the Leary Firefighters Foundation. So it, it was great to be able to not only explore some of these problems and, uh, but also be a part of trying to solve some. Nice. So is that, is that your, your main like charity work that you do with, um, you know, uh, raising funds for uh, local departments and stuff like that? Um, definitely do a lot of that. Um, it's on the, on the new film, we're talking with a lot of departments about them, uh, figuring out ways to use it for fundraisers. Kind of a weird time right now, right? Yeah. Because COVID sort of sucked all the air out of the room in terms of people's charitable giving. Oh, oh so yeah. We know that we're, <laughs> yeah, we're, 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 we're very aware we're, of that. We're deep into that. So. <laughs> so, so now that we're coming out of it, uh, it's, uh, hopefully the timing's good and we can we can be doing some more fundraisers at the start of the year. We want to do a fundraiser with you. We want to get into a project. And uh, if you got the time, we'd like to collaborate with you and, and raise some money. Yeah. When are you coming out to Chicago? Well, it sounds like I am now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, let's, well let's, are let's you still, are you still in the process of filming your medic documentary or is that? A uh, we're, we're, we're pretty much done. Yeah, okay. I mean, there's, I just have to go back to a couple of the departments to pick some stuff up. But, well, uh, well, he didn't pick Chicago. He didn't pick, he didn't Chicago. pick Chicago, so that was cool. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Right, uh, whatever. We'll, it was. It wasn't for lack of trying. You try working with the, the city <laughs> government there. <laughs> hey, I got news for you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I you know it, it's shame on them because uh, the story of EMS in Chicago and what these guys are going through. More people should understand what the medics here in Chicago do on a daily basis. Hundred uh, percent. Hey, well, once the first one comes out and people see what a positive thing it is, hopefully we can come back there. Yeah. People will. Uh, yeah, no, like I can help you. I can do what I can, and I think uh, we'll uh, do some stuff together, and then we'll we'll try to help you out yeah. with uh, what. What's the name of that one? That one's called Into the Unknown. Okay. And you can read about it at uh, IntoTheUnknownDoc.com. It's pretty cool. Ran, uh, Randy Mantooth and Kevin Teague from Emergency are the executive producers of it. Oh, uh, nice. A total blast hanging out with them. Are, are they, like, featured in it, or are they just producers? They're just the, – this was all their idea. They've been, trying, they've been trying to get it made for years, so they're just, like, the godfathers of the project. Good. I can't think of a more fitting – <laughs> right, two guys to put this uh, together right. with you. All right, yeah. well, we're going to give you the last word here, Tom. Uh, it's been a blast. Like I said, we'll stay in touch because um, I think we can do some more projects together. Yeah, you're gonna have to. Like I said, you're gonna have to come out here visit. We'll go out to dinner and stuff. Yeah, come on out. That and sounds great. Done. We'll we'll get you to a fire. No we'll get we'll get you on the pipe. That yeah. <laughs> No, no, I yes. know better. No way. We'll, we'll take you on some EMS runs. We'll have you push Narcan. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> the last thing anybody wants to see when they wake up from a drug abuse super. Is see Tom Putnam? Um, <laughs> that's right. Just asking the question. Thanks, guys. This, this, this was great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, again, if people want to check the movie out, just hit up DetroitFireFilm.org and... Let me know what you think of it. I'm easy to find on Facebook, Instagram, all the usual places. All right. Anything else, Steve? Uh, no, that's it. Tom, we can't thank you enough. But like you said, we'll stay in touch. But 
Tom Putnam from Burn and Burn X on Chicago's Raver Stories. Thanks. Thank you guys too. Bye. The opinions and views are that of Chicago's Bravest Stories and their guests. They do not necessarily reflect the views of any municipal governments, fire protection districts, fire departments, EMS, or law enforcement organizations. Chicago's Bravest Stories is also brought to you by Illuminated Brew Works, located at 6186 North, Northwest Highway, next to the car wash. This place, obviously, one of our favorite joints. Uh, you, you guys can make sure to uh, find them on their website, ibw-chicago.com. Illuminated Brew Works, ibw-chicago.com. When, when's their trivia night? Tuesday is trivia night at Illuminated Brew Works. Yeah. Also, if you want to try some of these beers, they're, they're breweries right there, literally 20 feet from where you're drinking. And if you want to try something, they'll give you a flight. Uh, try a flight of beer and really get a feel for all the beer that they have in that place. And go find your favorite. Yeah, yeah. Again, I mean, there's not, I, I can't think of any beer off the top of my head that I've gone in there that I've hated. I mean, everything's awesome. Yeah, so. we've crawled out of that place, man. <laughs> we've crawled out of that place. It's so good. And, and we will again soon. Yeah. So, Illuminated Brew Works. <laughs>